Good official afternoon, AP World History. Miss Funk here. It is a not-so-sunny Thursday afternoon, and we are starting on our new unit, AP Unit 6, period 6, 1750-1950. Same period as last time. Um, so all of these events are happening all at once, and you're going to see why that is today. Um, as always, you can follow along with this on Google Classroom. This has been posted with the PowerPoint. So if you clicked on the 6.1 PowerPoint, it should have led you here. Go ahead and title your notes, Motives for Imperialism. There is a table of contents with sections after this first definition that we're going to give. So you're welcome to section your notes after that. But I want to make sure we highlight the definition of the word imperialism before we really get started. Before we start the actual lecture and notes today, I wanted to give sort of a disclaimer as well as a warning. Um, I typed this up in the slide so it looks very long, but I'll also explain it to you out loud. Um, as we move into the more modern era, the 20th century, you're going to notice a lot of the topics that we touch on are going to become extremely uncomfortable because of their closeness to real life. Um, these attitudes and ideas are products of their time period. They're not my opinion. I certainly hope they aren't yours. Um, but it's very important not to ignore the attitudes of imperialist nations and the sort of ethnocentric and racist attitudes that were common in the world at that time period. Um, we need to recognize these as a part of the history of our world, as part of the history of our nations, as well as give voice to the people who were silenced in this time period. Um, it's really important to me that we do both of those things. So it's hard for me to do this lecture without being with you guys. I would rather be talking to you about it and experiencing it with you so we could have a conversation instead of me just having to talk at you about it. Um, so it can be difficult and it can be sensitive. Um, as we move through this PowerPoint, if you feel like you can't listen um, or if you feel like you need to take a break, please do what you need to do to take care of yourself. All right, with that out of the way, we are moving into this new topic, which is imperialism. So for your notes, it's important to start with the definition. Uh, imperialism is officially a policy of extending a country's power and influence through diplomacy and or through military force. So basically, imperialism, similar to the word empire, is the idea that one nation is going to take over or push a bunch of influence into another one, either peacefully or not. We'll learn pretty quickly. It's not often very peaceful. All right, here are those sections that I talked about. So there are five major motives for imperialism, five reasons why nations sought out this policy. They are culture, quote unquote, science, you'll see what I mean, nationalism, religion, and economics. Looking at this list, probably not very surprising. Motive number one is culture. Um, so this image to the right, we're gonna start with that, pretty horrifying. It's called The White Man's Burden, Civilizing the Unwilling Savage, published in Detroit in 1898. Um, you probably have already noticed some pretty horrifying things about this image, such as the way people are depicted, the things going on on the hill. Um, and this comic was created around this idea of the white man's burden, which ties us into our first point here on ethnocentrism. So ethnocentrism is the belief that one ethnic group is superior to others for whatever reason. So Europe especially had to deal with this idea that Europeans are better than the rest of the world. The way Europeans live their life is better than the rest of the world. Not only that, but whiteness is also better than everyone else. To be white is to be good. Um, this attitude has been around for a pretty long time with the Europeans. This is not the first time we've talked about it. 
But ethnocentrism became especially dangerous during this time period because of the number of people who could act on it. This ethnocentrism led to a sense of duty among the Europeans, and it was the idea of, quote-unquote, civilizing other nations. So to be European and to live the European way of life with its industrial nations and its capitalism and its factories and its laws and governments this way, to speak this language and to act these ways was to be civilized, was to be cultured. So a lot of times in media, we see figures who are supposed to be extremely cultured with you know upright British accents. And some of that comes from this. Um, this civilization came in a lot of different ways. So from politics, from culture, society, religion, basically changing the entire way of life of a people to become more European was seen as a duty for a lot of people. All right, primary source time. You do not have to copy anything down on this slide, but this is my attempt at having a conversation and trying to share with you. Um, so we're gonna look at a piece of poetry here by Rudyard Kipling. It's called The White Man's Burden. Um, so white man's burden is sort of used as the touchstone for imperialism in that a lot of the ideas and attitudes of the Europeans and of the Americans as well, the Americans are not complicit in this, um, towards these other cultures. It does a nice job capturing that feeling. Um, I've only included a small segment of the poem in this slide. The entire thing is linked at the bottom. Before I even read it to you, of course, you know we have to do a little bit of a happy um, so let me provide you a little bit more historical context in that this poem was written by a British poet okay, and a novelist as well. Kipling is British, but he wrote it towards the United States. The full title of the poem is The White Man's Burden, the United States and the Philippine Islands. In the poem, Kipling asks the United States to take up the burden of empire just like Europe did. So the excerpt that I posted on Classroom is as follows. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed. Go send your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild. Your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. The part of this that probably stuck out to you the most, I bet, was the last two lines. Your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. It's awful language to describe people, isn't it? So your newly caught and sullen people are sulking, right? That's what it means to be sullen. Half devil and half child. What kind of person is half devil and half child in your mind's eye? What does that look like? What does it say about Kipling that that's how he sees the peoples that he might interact with, right? So the native populations of these places. And by the way, the race of these native populations isn't just black um, or Asian or Hispanic or what have you. There are a million different kinds of peoples who are going to become oppressed in this time period by these imperialist nations, by these attitudes of arrogance, right? Just from looking at this source, we don't know much about Kipling, but we can kind of infer what kind of person he might be. He's definitely white. We know he's British. Uh, maybe he's wealthy. Maybe he's not. These are the kind of things you need to keep in mind as you analyze works like this, primary source works like The White Man's Burden, because it does a good job teaching us these attitudes of the Europeans, which were really bad. A lot of these attitudes were inspired by our second motive, which is quote unquote science. Moving on to the next slide. Um, starting off with some actual science that doesn't have scare quotes, uh, the 19th and 20th centuries brought us Charles Darwin, who is a real and actual scientist, and his ideas of Darwinism. 
So Darwinism basically said that our world has is the way it is because of something called survival of the fittest and that the strongest are always going to take out the weakest. So if there's a certain breed of, I don't know, wolf that's incredibly strong and another breed that is incredibly weak, eventually the stronger one will defeat the weaker one, leaving only the stronger one left. Um, so not actually a bad theory to have, and that is a bit how nature works. But the problem is that that theory was then applied by the Europeans and others into something called social Darwinism, where the ideas of Darwinism and survival of the fittest are applied to society in that stronger people should take over or be better than weaker people. So it's just science, you guys. That's all it is. That was sarcasm. This is not science. But you can kind of see, looking back at White Man's Burden and this slide, how those two things connect together. A lot of Europeans saw themselves as the strong nation, right? The strong nation is the one that has to survive. The strong peoples are the one that have to survive. And you can apply this theory in a lot of pretty terrible ways, whether internationally in imperialism or internally, right, to the rich versus the poor in any sort of nation. The idea that, well, maybe if the working class had worked a little bit harder, then they might not have to be subjugated. Not great. Really not great. Our second science is going to be what's called phrenology. So phrenology is a pseudoscience that started in 1750 um, and sort of failed as a ideology or science for a while and then became very popular very quickly for a certain reason. Um, so phrenology is the study of the shapes of skulls. And basically it says that certain races or certain types of people will have certain features in their skulls that correlate to parts of their brain. Um, so for example, some person might have a large lump, I don't know, near the back of their head. And that large lump means that that person's brain for subjugation or being taken over is really big. So therefore, that person should be easy to subdue. That person should be a slave or should be a worker because it's just in their bones. Not true. Obviously, brains aren't like this. And science wasn't super advanced at this point. We hadn't spent a lot of time looking at brains. So maybe it was an understandable idea that parts of our brain you know, control certain things and parts of our brain do control certain things. But nothing quite like what these guys were looking at. So phrenology started off as not very popular and then became really popular because the Europeans realized really, really quickly that if they just say their skulls say they need to be subdued and that we're better than them and science proves it, then that's a good thing for us. It's a justification. This is not going to be the last time that we see quote unquote science designed to justify bad behavior or bad actions or straight up murder. Um, pseudoscience is an unfortunate part of history. We're going to see it a lot as we get into World War I and World War II, especially with the study of eugenics. Um, so if that's something you're interested in, it's a pretty horrible topic, uh, but it's very interesting to see how people have justified their behavior um, in the past. Which leads us to cause number three, nationalism, social Darwinism, plus European ethnocentrism, plus general pride and national attitudes is going to lead us straight to nationalism. It's amazing how these things tie together, except it's not because it's really obvious. Um, but anyway, nationalism is an extreme pride in our nation, right? Um, it can often lead to violence or intense attitudes of arrogance and sort of betterness. 
And nationalism built itself into this period of imperialism. So taking over other nations, weaker nations, um, for the good of the country was seen as doing a service. And it often led to this sense of adventure. So young men would go out to Africa or to Asia and hope to take over and conquer land for God and for country. Okay, um, not great. So nations realized really quickly they became more powerful if they had more territory. So this became sort of a scramble for territory in all of these different places. Um, our big nationalist powers for this period are going to be Britain and Japan. Even though these notes are to the side, they should still be added to your notes themselves. So the British are known as the empire where the sun never sets because they took over so much land in this time period that somewhere on the globe, somehow, the sun was up at all times. Even if it was down in Britain, it might be up in Asia. Um, the most important territory you need to consider for Britain, and the one we're going to talk about the most over these next couple weeks, is going to be India. And then we're going to flip the switch over to Japan. So we talked about this already a little bit, preparing for your DBQ. Um, but Japan started to get these very nationalist ideas. Um, and they started encroaching in on Korea. China didn't like that. Korea is between China and Japan. And so the Qing Dynasty in China went to war with Japan, except the Japanese had just super industrialized during the Meiji Restoration. Therefore, they won the war handily. And by doing that, they took over Korea completely. Now, you'll note I'm saying Korea, not North and South Korea. North and South Korea, not a thing yet. Not a thing for a while. Motive number four is going to be economics. So this ties directly to our last unit, where the most important thing going on was industrialization. So industrialized nations need raw materials to work. You can't make fabric if you don't have cotton. So they needed more resources and they needed as many of them as possible, as cheaply as possible, in order to make lots and lots of money. Therefore, colonies made perfect sense. Colonies meant cheap raw materials and cheap resources. As a consequence of this, the Europeans started to strip territories of all of their resources, no matter what those were, be they timber, cotton, gold, diamonds, anything. They would take anything they could get their hands on um, and often do so in very brutal and bloody ways. So Africa was left with a lot of nothing, for example, because of the way the Europeans broke in and just took everything they could get their hands on. Um, imperialism also created new trade markets for European goods. So they needed not only the stuff so they could make their products, but also somewhere to sell them back to. So the pattern for a new territory would go something like this. First off, the imperial nation would establish a trade post via politics or political dealings, which weren't always fair. Oftentimes they would have leaders agree to treaties in languages they didn't understand, which is behavior we've seen before. Um, this trade post would come with the right to protect their trade post from any sort of threat. So if anyone tried to attack them, the Europeans or the imperial nations had the right to protect their trade posts. Eventually, that would lead into conquering world territory to protect themselves, um, which eventually led to huge colonies. So we're going to see the amount of territory owned by the people who actually lived there in Africa, especially, drop to minuscule amounts. Our final motive for imperialism is going to be religion. Um, I know you didn't think religion was going to go away entirely. It was, after all, one of the driving causes of original colonialism back in the 1500s. Um, in the case of imperialism in the modern era, 1819th 
centuries, um, religion was usually spread by missionaries. And these missionaries would come to these new places and try to spread Christianity. Civilized, in a lot of cases, usually equaled Christianized, right? To be Christian was to be civil. Um, And these missionaries would go into territories, build schools, and teach skills like math and literacy and language, which is great, um, but often at the cost of wiping out native cultures and languages as well. Um, Places such as India had native languages kind of pushed to the side. Everyone was required to speak English, just like their colonizers, the British. Um, And a lot of times cultural artifacts or cultural icons such as dress or or tradition were taken away. Um, The picture on this slide is the cover of a really wonderful book called Things Fall Apart. My plan originally was going to be to assign you um, a few chapters of this book to read over spring break. But seeing as how we can't really do that anymore, um, I just wanted to make sure I left the notion of it in here instead. Um, So the book is called Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. It's a really great book if you're interested. So to make a long story short, the Europeans and other nations, but our big focus here is going to be the Europeans, showed up and took over a bunch of cultures and destroyed everything, again, with massive consequences. Um, This period of imperialism has a lot of similarities to our original period of colonialism, only now, instead of advanced weapons being some guns, advanced weapons are going to be things like machine guns and things like capitalism that are going to drive decision-making in this time period. It sucks. And I know the last thing we need is a super depressing topic right now, but that's what I have to give you. I'm sorry. I attached a cute picture of Knox, if that will help cheer you up a little bit. Um, While this is a depressing and difficult topic, I did want to point out to you, um, it is really interesting in that uh, it has some serious ramifications and effects on the world we live in today. Um, So if you're interested in this topic and you want to do a little bit more research or you just want to hear more about it before we dive into it kind of as a class, um, I added a couple recommendations over for your break. So like I mentioned earlier, Things Fall Apart by Chino Achebe is an amazing book. Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad kind of takes the other side. Um, These two things together create a pretty good picture of imperialism in Africa, one of them from the perspective of the colonizer and one from the perspective of the colonized. Um, I also am including a link to a couple of podcasts. This podcast has a naughty word in the name, so we'll just call it behind the buttheads for now. Um, but they do a really good job of summarizing in an interesting and thoughtful and also kind of funny way some of these terrible things that happen. Um, so the premise of the podcast is a journalist and historian starts off by teaching the topic of some kind to a comedian or an activist or someone who's probably never heard of it before. And it turns out to be really interesting. He's really great. I highly recommend him as a historian. I think he's awesome. So I included three separate podcasts he's done on imperialism that are all free to listen to. So we've got Phrenology in part one and part two, which is the science of bones and skulls, supposedly, and how that led to a lot of murder and also genocide. Um, We've got the most evil company in history, which is about the East India Company, owned by the British. It accidentally caused a famine. Um, And then King Leopold II, who we're going to spend some time on um, in our virtual class as arguably the most horrible man in modern history. Um, So if you're interested in this or you want something to do, I would highly recommend any of these things. That's all I've got for you guys today. Um, Remember, your notes are going to be collected, hopefully at the end of this, when it's all said and done. Um, I hope that you're having a very good day. I love you guys very much. I miss you guys very much. And I hope you learned something a little bit new today.
Um, have a great rest of your week, a great weekend, and you'll hear from me again on Tuesday when I'll put up another PowerPoint about imperialism. Bye, guys.